Governor Phil Scott outlining his priorities to lawmakers in his state of the state. To meet this moment, we're going to have to prioritize, set aside good things that are less urgent, and rise above the toxic polarization of America's political parties to focus our work directly on these fundamental issues. Housing, affordability, and public safety all at the top of his list this year. And a warning from the governor about this year's budget. So how does that set the stage for the session ahead? From the Vermont Public Studio in Winooski, this is Vermont This Week. Made possible in part by the Lintelac Foundation and Milne Travel. Thanks for joining us. I'm Kat Villianzoni. A busy week under the Golden Dome as the legislative session kicks off and the governor outlines his vision for the Green Mountain State. I'm joined by Mark Davis, editor at Vermont Public, Aaron Patenko from Vermont Digger, and Calvin Cutler, political reporter at WCAX. Thank you all for being here today. Oh, it took about 40 minutes for the governor to lay out his broad priorities for the state. Let's get right into it. Calvin, what in this year's State of the State stood out to you the most? I think the governor and really what it was was a plea to the Democratic supermajority, I think, for fiscal restraint. The governor talked a lot about the big investments that we've made in the past few years from all of the coronavirus relief money that we've had, but he you know, outlined some of the, the economic uh, headwinds that we have in terms of inflation, costs going up, revenue will be down, that coronavirus cash is gone. And so he said that lawmakers should really be tightening their belt this year, practicing that restraint, and instead, you know, focusing on policies and areas where he says we'll be able to make Vermont more affordable, um, you know, tax relief, that type of thing, uh, you know, building more housing, bringing more people into the state, building the tax base, and also focusing on public safety, which from the governor's perspective um, has been a real deterrent for, for some people and has been a real big concern for Vermonters. Um, so I think, you know, these aren't necessarily new concepts. The governor has talked about these um, these for years, but I think there was a, definitely, it was a little bit more of a tone of urgency from the governor, um, you know, given what we saw last session as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think the governor is perhaps never more happy and never more comfortable than when he's getting to lecture Democratic lawmakers on fiscal restraint. It, he, he seems to be in his wheelhouse when he, when he does this. And, you know, I think the number that is, uh, we're going to be hearing endlessly is 18%, which is the estimated rise in the education property tax rate um, as things stand right now. And so to Calvin's point, the governor says he's gonna offer up a budget, that's 3% rise uh, as compared to the 13% last year. And he actually started jabbing a little bit at, at Democrats already. One of the lines that really uh, jumped out at me was he said, I, I know many of you uh, view 3% growth as an austerity approach, which, you know, you didn't catch the sarcasm there. And so I think we are gonna have, I mean, like Calvin said, none of this is, is terribly new. The dynamics have always been there. But boy, there's going to be a sharp uh, fight and, and degree of, of, of difficulty here on some real fiscal differences. Uh, it's a different tenor, I think, already than it has been in recent sessions. And, and I will just also say, too, one of the, the fascinating things, you know, we're here in the second year of the biennium. You know, lawmakers all, are already hitting the ground running very quickly, but this is a, a brand new crop of lawmakers. Last year, um, you know, we had about a third of the legislature turnover. And so, you know, I've been talking with some of the senior appropriations folks 
folks at the state house and other more senior lawmakers. And there is a, I wouldn't say a concern, but it's going to be a dynamic to keep an eye on of many of the new lawmakers. Um, you know, we've always had coronavirus cash. It's always been boom times, you know, essentially in terms of the state budget. And if you can think of a program, if your constituents need it, maybe we can have it because we've had all of this money. But, you know, to, to Mark's point, um, you know, it's those, those times have kind of ended. So I think there's going to be a, a little bit more of a, a robust discussion about how the state will be allocating those resources this year. Yeah. It also seemed like he was talking not just to the legislature, but to the Vermont public, kind of making the case that fiscal responsibility is necessary to keep their taxes low because he knows that, you know, many Vermonters are complaining about affordability in a lot of different ways. Uh, the affordability of housing, food, gas, and he kept saying, like, you don't want to have to pay additional taxes on top of that, so help me to convince the legislature to keep things fiscally in within our means. Well, that's right. That's yeah, an important piece of context here. The, uh, the governor vetoed last year the, the budget, which was then overridden, right? And so we already have this tension, and now we've got it in an atmosphere where the, the numbers are are even tougher, right? Um, and, and so how does that play out? He acknowledges... You know, I think he said at one point, effectively, all I can really do is advocate for my positions. But that that's not nothing. Uh, and that's not nothing a year in which Vermonters are potentially looking at an 18 percent rise in that education property tax. And of course, the governor is approaching this knowing that he was elected by an overwhelming majority of Vermonters. So while the legislature has that supermajority that you all brought up, you know, he knows that he also has public support as well. And I think he was trying to, in some ways, leverage that during his state of the state and point out that, you know, some of the public might be agreeing with me, even if you feel differently. And I kind of got a little bit of that tone, you know, even though he did not bring that up specifically, he never mentioned his popularity rate. Yeah, I mean, that's always been one of my biggest questions since the last election is what were voters trying to tell us? You know, electing Governor Phil Scott by his largest margin yet, but also electing the largest Democratic supermajority, 104 Democrats into the House of Representatives. And so what we've been seeing play out last year, and I'd assume... You know, we'll, we'll see what happens this year if there's an appetite for cooperation and for bipartisanship uh, and, and what priorities, um, you know, they'll share and what that work will look like. But, you know, how, how do those two factors, you know, uh, jive with each other? I mean, it, it's been a really fascinating, um, you know, dynamic to watch. And I, I don't know if we've ever really seen that in Vermont. There's always been, you know, Democratic majorities or having, you know, to rely on, you know, Democrats and their progressive allies. But, uh, you know, having 104 Democrats versus, you know, the, the state's most or the nation's most popular Republican governor, uh, it's been a really fascinating dynamic. Mm -hmm. Education spending was also part of the governor's affordability message to lawmakers. He definitely talked about that. The education fund is now more than $2.1 billion, with fewer, fewer than 83,000 pre-K through 12 students are spending about $25,000 a year per student among the very highest in the country. And that might be okay with me if we were leading in student performance. But in several areas, we're in the middle of the pack, according to the U.S. Department of Education. Now, it was interesting because it seemed like the governor went out of his way not to blame teachers for that at all. Um, but he also definitely told towns to tighten up their budgets and also seemed to be kind of indicating that we weren't necessarily getting the return on the investment that 
you know, we should have been from that. What do you make of that, Mark? Yeah, I, what you noted, I think, was he immediately said it's not the teachers effectively, it's the bureaucracy, right? It's having all these these districts, and, 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 and that was noticeable. He didn't sort of finish the thought that I think a lot of us thought uh, he might offer. What he offered was the same things he's been offering for years now, right? Uh, consolidation in districts, uh, perhaps looking at a, a cap on, on property taxes, this idea of a statewide teacher's contract again. So we've been hearing a lot about this for years now. It's not a sort of different menu of options. It's just perhaps more urgency uh, to choose some of them. I think it also, I mean, we're going to get ahead of the game. It's going to be fascinating at town meeting season when these school budgets go for votes. I think this this 18% number is now uh, widely known in Montpelier. I think still the average Vermonter is, is just getting acquainted with this idea. And once the reality of what that looks like, I think it's about $650 on a $250,000 house going up. Um, that's going to be a really powerful, I think, influence in the legislature. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I would agree. And I mean, town meeting day, as you mentioned, is still a few months away, but um, school boards are just a few weeks away, really, from, from finalizing their budgets. Then they have to warn them to voters. And there's still, though, you know, it's, it's worth pointing out, there's a lot of things that we can not control when it comes to, to spending. I mean, health care costs, I think that's one of the big factors across state government, um, across local districts. I mean, health care costs are going up across the board, inflation. So there's some things that we can't necessarily directly control, uh, or at least to the tune that we'd like to. But then there's other things. I mean, you know, there's still a, a immediate need and a really big need for kids in school with mental health, nutrition, um, you know, uh, special education. There's a, definitely a lot of challenges that are, are facing schools. And I think, you know, what, where we go with town meeting day budgets and whether voters will give them the thumbs up or the thumbs down, um, you know, we'll, we'll have to see. But it is going to be, I think, a really fascinating town meeting day season. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It seems like uh, one of the open questions of how much we can control is, uh, you know, the, the kind of looming demographic crisis in Vermont, too, which Scott uh, mentioned at the top of his address. We are seeing fewer and fewer school-aged children, which is leading to schools, you know, feeling this pressure to consolidate. So it is, in a way, all connected as well to Scott's kind of agenda for improving Vermont's economy. Yeah, and affordability and housing, you know, those go hand in hand. We know that. We know finding an affordable home in Vermont, especially in places like Chittenden County, is quite a challenge. Um, and the governor, we heard him again calling for what he feels is one of the solutions, which is Act 250 reform. Act 250 did exactly what it was intended to do. It slowed down growth, and in some cases, stopped it altogether. But it was enacted at a time when we were growing way too fast. Today, we face a different reality, one where families desperately need homes and communities need reinvestment. We've committed the funds and laid the groundwork, but if we don't truly address Act 250, we won't solve our housing crisis. So, Calvin, do you see an appetite, or when you're at the State House, are you hearing any appetite from lawmakers this session to try to tackle Act, to try to tackle Act 250 in a big way, or is some of the tight funding pool going to throw a wrench in a bit of the housing efforts that we have? Yeah, I mean, I definitely do see and, and feel an appetite to address Act 250. I think there is a disagreement as to to what degree. You know, Act 250 is the root cause. Um, you know, the governor has for years now and others in the development community and the business community have said that it's stifled growth and it's really 
you know, been a, a cap that, that, you know, we've had a really big challenge getting through. You know, other folks might tell you, you know, there's construction costs, we've got labor, there's other things that are, are limiting housing construction. But I do see a, um, an appetite to address Act 250 as part of a, the housing bill, the Homes Act, I believe it was last year. Um, there was an Act 250 study that was commissioned, and essentially it's going to bring forward recommendations um, about how to reform Act 250, finding that balance between protecting natural resources and our working lands, and especially in the context of flooding as well, trying to preserve you know, a lot of, of the, the area where, where you know, we can absorb flood water, but also developing where we need to in our downtown growth centers, but of course, staying away from, from those floodplains. So I think there definitely is an appetite, um, but to Scott's point with, with Act 250, that's a change or a tweak that we can make without putting maybe too much money in. Well, that's the key. I mean, I, I wonder if this might be the one area where they can get some consensus because there aren't going to be dollar signs attached to it, right? I mean, the argument the governor is starting to make is we've spent hundreds of millions of public dollars uh, to increase our housing stock but it hasn't made a big enough dent and we don't have that money anymore, so what else can we do? And there's a lot of pressure on lawmakers, I think of all parties, to address this housing crisis. It might be the number one thing you hear from Vermonters. And so in this idea that you have to do something, perhaps going to Act 250 is, is a way that they can find some common ground. There does seem to be more talk about it than I think there ever has been. I mean, it wasn't too long ago that Act 250 was something that more or less brought people together as something that the states had a lot of pride in. There does seem to be some rhetorical shifting, although the Senate president came out with some skepticism early this week. Who knows? It, it's early days. Um, but perhaps because it's a little bit separate from the, the fiscal pressures, there, there could be some cooperation there. And when we talk about housing, of course, you know, one of the, the things that I think stood out to me in, in the governor's address was that he, you know, mentioned briefly homeless housing, but really didn't didn't stay on that topic much. But we know lawmakers are thinking about that topic already. You know, what do you what do you make of that? Yeah, I mean, that's a, certainly that was a huge political sticking point at the end of last session is what do we do with the July 1st cohort? in the general assistance program. Um, as we know, there's uh, about anywhere from 900 to 1,100 people. It's kind of a moving number from, from day to day, but there's you know many, many Vermonters that are, are living in hotel rooms. And that funding, of course, is coming is running dry at uh, at the end of uh, April. So, um, you know, this pandemic era hotel program, lawmakers are considering once again uh, extending it. Uh, the governor and his team actually uh, just presented their Budget Adjustment Act, which is a mid-year tweak to the budget. And in previous years, I mean, we've been able to invest tens of millions of dollars. This year, uh, it, the money is tighter, but they this is essentially a bridge to continue to keep people sheltered to you know avoid a situation of mass unsheltered homelessness and camping and to try to keep people um, you know have a roof over their head while they continue to bring more housing options online and to build more affordable housing you know and that's the ultimate end goal is to you know create a healthy housing market where people of, of all incomes can uh, can can find housing opportunities but you know, getting there is, is definitely the, the challenge. And we do have the latest point in time count numbers that we want to show you um, regarding homelessness so that you get a sense of some of the context for the conversation we're having here. You know, you can see the spike there um, at the end of, you know, how Vermont's point in time count has changed over time. 
Aaron, you know, when you see data numbers like that, you know, what kind of what, what goes through your head when you look at that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you can see that the the big spike between uh, 2020 and 2021 is probably connected with the you know start of the motel housing program and people being able to find shelter in Vermont, which is a combination of like people are more likely to be counted when they're they're easy to find, but also potentially like people even coming to Vermont or f staying in Vermont rather than leaving because they had a place to stay. Um, and v Vermont had, I believe it was the second highest homelessness rate in the nation according to this count, but one of the lowest rates of unsheltered folks, mm -hmm. which is pretty typical of rural areas where homelessness kind of looks different than what you would expect in an urban area of like people living in motels, living out of their car, living in a friend's house, and other kind of atypical housing situations. Mm -hmm. uh, the governor focusing on public safety, too, not, you know, really exactly saying how he would tamp down on crime. We didn't hear the specifics. We might learn some of that in the budget address that comes out later this month. But we know lawmakers are also looking at how to address some of the concerns from people about the rise in property crimes um, and theft, among other things. Do you see this as an area where the governor and lawmakers might see eye to eye on, or do you think that the, the you know, philosophies on how to handle these issues might be too far apart? Yeah, I think there is a philosophical divide there. I mean, I, there seems to be a broad sense that something's going on that needs addressing. But as you mentioned, uh, few specifics, and I think any sort of specific initiative uh, to combat a rise in crime or a perceived rise in crime in the year 2024 is going to be a little controversial. The one thing the governor sort of was hinting at uh, in his speech was bail reform. He talked about people sort of offending and then being out and reoffending again just a few hours later, which speaks to some efforts to keep people out of jail pre-trial that have been implemented in recent years. So it seems as though there's going to be some proposal um, looking at the bail reform efforts of recent years. Beyond that, I, I, I think it's going to be difficult to find an easy consensus on anything criminal justice related, given everything that's happened in this country in recent years and a lot of the rethinking of, of traditional criminal justice approaches. Yeah, I was going to say, I think, yeah, that's definitely, that might be one area. And I think the only one that I really see is sort of the, the, the retail theft. Uh, that's definitely been a concern that has been put on the governor's radar, his team's radar. Largely, Republicans at the State House have been talking about this for a few years now. And the chair of the Judiciary Committee, uh, Martin Malone um, of South Burlington, has said that this is going to be a priority. In fact, he's actually, his committee is taking a look at it this week to try to find some way of, you know, how can we stack the, the uh, amount of, you know, uh, product that people are, are stealing and, and potentially could that come to a criminal charge or a felony. So I think that could be one area of, of agreement. Um, but the other thing is when you look at how does the Democratic majority plan at, um, you know, especially with the court backlog, you know, they, they would like to see more funding for the judiciary, you know, easier uh, process to appoint judges and to confirm judges, and then more funding for public defenders and for um, state's attorneys just to sort of expedite justice. So that's sort of, you know, their vision of, of how, you know, to, to deal with the public safety and sort of the, the, the court backlog situation. Mm -hmm. The Democrats have also come out in favor of different measures to tackle the opioid crisis, like opioid overdose sites, which Scott has opposed. But I think that the Democrats may very well make the argument that this is all kind of connected. We know that at least some crime is drug-related crime, people who have addictions, stealing, and things like that. So 
that might be kind of the counterbalancing argument that they make with Scott at some point of like, well, if you want us to act on this, you have to support this. Right. And, and don't forget, the most expensive policy solution to, to this is incarcerating people, right? Which is sort of the motivation for a lot of reforms that have been in place anyway. And so if you're talking about fiscal restraint and a tough budgetary time, any approach that leads to an increase in people behind bars is going to come with a very significant yeah. price tag itself. We don't even really have a place to house uh, juvenile offenders yeah. or, uh, you know, women who offend. I think we, you know, they've been calling for new facilities for a while. So, you know, if you're going to arrest or incarcerate more people, where are you even going to physically right. put them? And, um, you know, we, we know that they don't always agree on those issues, but however, we do know that, and we know from talking with people in the stories that we cover that there is some public pressure, though, to do something. Um, you hear from business owners who say, you know, I'm leaving Church Street because, you know, the retail theft is too much. You know, and so there's, I think there is a little bit of awareness, though, from some lawmakers that there is this kind of push from the public that says, hey, find a solution. <laughs> you know, we might not know, we in the public might not know what the solution is, but please find one. Um, so we'll be, I'll be curious to see where that goes. Uh, you know, what I thought was kind of interesting, the governor throughout the, the state of the state laid out several data points um, before lawmakers on things like crime, on school costs, on housing needs, on demographics. Aaron, you know, as a data reporter, you know, do you think the governor was trying to effectively say the numbers don't lie in his message to lawmakers? Yeah. Also, just to kind of illustrate the, the scale of the problems that you're talking about, numbers can be very useful. If you want to illustrate how big of a problem we have with our looming demographic crisis, it makes sense to say, here's where we need to be in order to keep the state running, and here's where we are. Uh, so I think that, you know, numbers are an effective way to communicate that, but definitely a part of his kind of case that he's making to lawmakers about affordability. You know, money is, an, is all numbers, of course, so that's what you're going to roll with. Um, and, uh, you know, he cited many statistics on crime as well to kind of illustrate the trend uh, that we've seen year over year of an increase in crime post-pandemic. Mm. Uh I really want to make sure we get to the Democratic response to the governor's address. Um, they said the governor in, lacked specifics. Um, and they agree, though, they said with the, the kind of the 30,000-foot view of the governor's broad goals. Um, Senator Phil Baruth weighing in on that. Half of the speech, a good 20 minutes, half an hour, was kind of anecdotes and um, more general, light material that was a little surprising in this particular moment. He was kind of calling out the governor there for some of the, you know, the community anecdotes of, of you know, resiliency and, you know, building community and, and saying we want the specifics. Of course, we know many of those specifics often come later in the month in the budget address. Um, you know, do you think the, the devil will be in the details in some of these major policy issues, given that they might agree on that 30,000-foot view? Oh, ab I mean, absolutely. I mean, with any state of the state, I mean, that's, it's a political vision. It's a political message. And then, you know, really is when, when the rubber hits the road is the budget address. What I'm going to be looking for uh, in his budget address is the flood angle to all of this. You know, a lot of what the senator was just talking about with the the anecdotes and the stories of Vermonters, those were all in a flood context. But, you know, we had a $85.5 million proposal from um, a, a coalition, a, a group of central Vermont lawmakers for flood recovery and resiliency, more help for, for homeowners and businesses that were just clobbered and are still struggling from this summer's floods. I'm going to be curious, looking, you know, into the budget proposal, what direct aid, if any, will there be from the administration? And, you know, what does the governor see the role of his administration, um, you know, being in flood recovery? It's interesting. I think he actually started addressing a little bit 
a little bit of that in that laundry list of, of happy, fluffy stories that Senator Baruth called out, which is, is true. It was remarkable how much of the speech was like, there's always that call out to the kids in the lemonade stand who make the donations. There was a lot of it in this speech. I think there was a political reason behind that. And in fact, the quote was really interesting to me. The governor said, uh, neither government nor money builds communities, people do. And that's a classic Republican sort of conservative message. But I think he's also telegraphing that the money isn't going to come to fix all of these problems. And I think highlighting those happy individual stories was the governor's way of laying the groundwork for, for having to say no, frankly, coming forward to a lot of uh, the aid packages that are going to come, that we just don't have the money and the government cannot solve all these problems for people. At the same time, you know, the contrast between these, you know, individual instances of people taking responsibility really uh, kind of stood in opposition to when the lawmakers were proposing this omnibus bill. They had several business people, they had homeowners in the Montpelier Barry area come up and say, you know, we have been working for six months, you know, we've gotten the community response, we're really grateful for it, but we really still need help. We have unmet needs. Um, and, you know, whether or not Scott really, you know, feels like we have the money for that, the lawmakers say, you know, we kind of can't not help people. That's their argument, because if businesses go under, we lose those businesses, we lose the, that money. Uh, so that's kind of the, the counter argument that they were making and expecting Scott to oppose them during his speech. And then there's the big existential question of we had horrible floods this summer. We had a very significant flood in December. What happens if there's a flood next summer in the Northeast Kingdom or down in, you know, southern Vermont? Or in Montpelier again, or, you know, again, knock on wood. Right. You know, but. And, and, and would we do another aid package? And that's, I guess, the, the, the cycle that we find ourselves in. And that's, I think, one of the big themes that I'm hearing in the building of like, oh, boy, we need to address flood relief. People need help. But this is like a big problem that Vermont has. And it's not just Vermont. I mean, New England is 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 prone to this, but it's um it's a big question without an answer right now. Right. Um, wanted to get to a couple more things very quickly because um, our news of the week didn't take us long to see the Democratic majority uh, start to flex its muscles. The second day of the session, the House voted to override the governor's veto of the bottle bill. That means consumers pay um, a bottle deposit on more things, wine, juice, sports drinks. It's a higher deposit amount of 10 cents instead of five. Um, you know, a little bit unusual, maybe not really to see a, a veto overridden that quickly. Very. No, I think it's it's been a long time coming. I mean, it's significant. It happened the day of his State of the State speech, but this has been in the works and this has been a priority, I mm -hmm. think. And of course, we will learn a lot more about the governor's vision in his budget address, which is in just a few weeks. Mark Davis, editor at Vermont Public. Aaron Patenko from VT Digger and Calvin Cutler, political reporter at WCX. Thank you all for the discussion about the state of the state. And thank you all for watching. I'm Kat Villanzoni. You've been watching Vermont This Week. Take care.